And this is a really important part of propaganda because it's exactly the opposite of what the scientific evidence shows. It's like climate science denial, right? If more police prosecutors in prisons made us safer, we'd have the safest country in the history of the world because no one else has ever tried to invest this much money and resources into caging people. No other society in the recorded history of the modern world has attempted to transfer this many human beings from their schools and homes and jobs and churches and families into government-run cages. And, and the plurality of those arrests for decades has been possessing some kind of a substance that's on a list of substances that the government says I can't possess. I mean, that is just outrageous. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hey everybody, it's Zach here, and I'm really excited to introduce another episode of Narcotica, the podcast that you are currently listening to. I've had COVID all week, so I'm kind of brain dead, and I'll keep this intro brief, but Troy and I have an amazing guest on this episode talking all things copaganda, which is self-evident enough propaganda, but for cops. Essentially, how our media promotes police talking points as natural, God-given facts. Like how no matter what the problem is, whether it's fentanyl overdoses or mass shootings, the solution to all of our problems is always more money and bigger budgets for police, prosecutors, and prisons. Funny how that works, right? If crime goes up, we need more police. If crime goes down, it's because of the police and we need more of them. They really can't lose. In this episode, we have a whip-smart guest, Alec Karakatsanis, to talk about local news, national news, and how these institutions subtly present pro-police talking points as fact. This is no clearer than in the decade-long campaign to convince everybody that the best way to deal with drug use is through a drug war, using the tools of criminal law and policing, and it hasn't really ever worked, but we just keep doing it. So we've got a lot jam-packed into this episode that we think you'll really like, and before rolling the interview, just a few housekeeping items. If you like our show and you want to support what we do, you can find us on patreon.com slash narcotica. We've also got some cool swag, t-shirts and mugs, such things at narcocast.myshopify.com. So we don't do any advertising or any commercials and we put all of our content out for free. So if you regularly listen to us and want to help us out, Even just a couple bucks a month goes a long way. So I'm going to shut up now. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And let's roll that interview. I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. Our guest today is Alex Karakatsanis, the founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps, a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging systemic injustice in the United States legal system, a system that is built on white supremacy and economic inequality. Alec has helped challenge the money bail system in California and is the author of the book Usual Cruelty, 
He is passionate about ending human caging, surveillance, police, the death penalty, immigration laws, war, and inequality. Alec, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I think where, you know, where I want to begin with you, Alec, is to talk about your Twitter fame or, or maybe infamy, depending on who you ask. You're kind of the king of these long, in-depth Twitter threads where you analyzed how so-called objective news outlets like the New York Times or the LA Times subtly insert pro-police propaganda into journalism. So for those of you out there who aren't aware of Alex's threads, what he does is take an article and go through it line by line, basically, like revealing either outright false information presented as fact or highly ideologically weighted claims being made that are also presented as just kind of facts of the world. And so as a, a reporter, like I certainly appreciate this critique that you make of how the news kind of launders these uh, narratives and often doing so quite subtly. So it takes an eye like yours to, to really unpack it. And so just off the bat, I imagine there's some reporters who don't like what you're doing. And I, and I just wonder, like, do you ever get any response or pushback from from these outlets that you critique or, or reporters from these outlets? Like, where have these threads gone um, over over the course of you doing them? I've been surprised and kind of amazed and somewhat heartened by the response that I've been getting. So obviously, when I had started to identify copaganda, I, I call it all copaganda, which is sort of propaganda that it serves the interests of the punishment bureaucracy and the, the interests that profit and benefit from it. Um, when I started writing about it on online and, and really uh, calling out a lot of reporters for participating in it, many, many of those reporters and their editors and producers you know, reached out to me and, and said, wow, we, we really had no idea. Like we were doing this, we were sort of reporting things as, as we were taught and we were reporting things in the way that the police presented them to us. And so many of them, I, I think, are, are uh, kind of surprisingly uh, just uninformed about these issues and susceptible to relatively sophisticated propaganda by police departments, by politicians, um, by um, corporate interests to benefit from keeping the punishment bureaucracy the, the size that it is. Um, others of them are more defensive and I think um, more bad faith actors. And so there are certainly uh, a significant percentage of the journalists that I comment on, I interact with, that know very, very well what they're doing. They understand that they've carefully selected the sources in their stories, that they've carefully chosen which things they're going to write about, which things they're going to ignore, and, and largely view their role as actually serving the interests of people in power. And so I think there's, there's different categories of journalists, but, I, but so far, by and large, I've been pretty happy with, with the way in which they've responded, not just publicly, but, but particularly privately. And I've been doing a lot of private work with journalists, with editors, with newsrooms, doing trainings, um, helping people understand how some of the news gathering process that they're engaged in is, is corrupted by people who are intentionally and, and highly incentivized um, to influence what they write. And so, but I think it's maybe worth taking a step back and just kind of defining uh, what I mean by propaganda so that, that folks have, 
you know, a sense of what we're talking about. Do you think that that makes sense? Yeah, that I mean, Troy, I, I definitely put that down as like one of our one of our top questions. And for for listeners, you know, we all know what propaganda is, and you know, it was propaganda wasn't always a bad thing, <laughs> but it's it, it's it's become you know, there's there's all sorts of different um, meanings to these words now. So yeah, let, let's definitely uh, go through uh, propaganda as. Uh, as you call it, which is a very, very clever and, and catchy term. Yeah, so I think that, that there's really, there's a lot to it, but I think there's really three key components of what I think of as propaganda. The first is an attempt by people in power to uh, narrow our definition and our understanding and our conception of what it means to be safe. So these people have a very particular interest in making us scared of very particular things. And those things are not, in fact, the things that are most damaging to our health and well-being. Um, I think I'm going to draw an example from the war on drugs um, in a moment about how I think the war on drugs has been an incredibly successful multi-decade long um, project of propaganda. But just to define the term, you know, right off the bat, um, there are a number of things that are dangerous and that threaten our health and well-being. So um, wage theft, for example, takes $50 billion a year from mostly low-wage workers. Um, it's, it's not investigated or reported as a crime um, by police, and so it's hardly ever covered in the media. And in fact, it's not even included in crime stats that the police present, even though it's about five to ten times the, the, the total dollar amount of all other property crime combined. When you think of tax evasion, it's a trillion dollars a year. That's about a hundred times robbery and theft and burglary, right? Um, But it's not reported as a crime by police statistics. And so when when police talk about the property crime rates, they're excluding those two types of property crime, which are the two biggest types of property crime. And instead, they're focused on low-level crimes by the poor. The same is true of of so-called violent crime. The same is true of, of many, many other things that for example, um, one of the most common crimes in our society is illegal dumping of chemicals into the water supply and to the air supply. And air pollution alone kills 100,000 people in this country and 10 million people around the world every year. So it kills five times the total number of people who are killed by homicide in this country. And so when, when the first task of propaganda is to urgently and as if it's an emergency at every moment get the public concerned about what the police call crime, but to narrowly define crime so that it's not talking about the greatest threats to our health and well-being. I've named just a couple of them, but in some of my writing on on Twitter and in in my book and in other places, I go through how virtually all of the greatest threats to our well-being, almost all of which are easily preventable, are not talked about um, in the media nearly as much as low-level crime by the poor. So the first function of propaganda is to scare us about what poor people do. And there's a very particular reason for that. The second function of propaganda, and what I talk about a lot on Twitter, is having narrowly defined the things that should scare us very, very much to not include you know, the things that large corporations do and to not include the things that powerful people do, but to only include the things poor people do. Propaganda seeks to constantly convince us that it's rising. Right. So they always want us to believe that this so-called category of crime is increasing. And that's why if you look at surveys over the last 25, 30 years, 
people in the United States constantly overestimate crime and constantly think it's rising, even when it's decreasing. And then the third and most important function of propaganda is to trick people into thinking that the solution to this urgent crime wave uh, problem is more investment in police prosecutors and prisons. And this is a really important part of propaganda because it's exactly the opposite of what the scientific evidence shows. It's like climate science denial, right? If more police prosecutors and prisons made us safer, we'd have the safest country in the history of the world because no one else has ever tried to invest this much money and resources into caging people. And in fact, we don't have a very safe society. There's a lot of violence and trauma and harm in our society. And so the third function of, of, of propaganda is to get people who are really scared about crime to think that rather than addressing the root causes of, of harm and violence, like education and housing and mental health and inequality and poverty, um, toxic masculinity, all these sort of actual systemic issues, we have to just invest in police prosecutors and prisons. And this is essentially a playbook that was perfected in the war on drugs. And it's not always as overt as, uh, you know, nowadays as it used to be. So for example, you know, the, the um, DEA used to pay television shows. Some of the most popular television shows in the 1990s were secretly paid by the DEA to include anti-drug talking points. Um, and so a lot of the sort of characters that we knew and loved on those shows um, and, and the citations needed podcast with Nima and Adam has done a really good job sort of exposing yeah. the research on this recently, right? But it's, it's not always like that, right? It, it, it's much more subtle nowadays. And I'm not accusing anyone of getting paid, um, you know, any of these journalists of getting paid to insert these things. I think they've internalized a lot of that rhetoric and a lot of those ideologies. And so that's the kind of thing that I talk about on Twitter a lot. Yeah, thank you. That's really great. Uh, a, a good summary of, you know, how this misinformation can be weaponized. You're holding a lot of reporters accountable, and that's that's really great because I think a lot of them really need to be called out on some of this stuff. And you offer this really popular list uh, of things that you can ask uh, cops, um, such as, why do you choose to devote almost all of your undercover resources to drug busts and not to undercover investigations of police corruption or white-collar crime? Why do you choose to arrest people for drug possession as the plurality of your arrests? And do you have any reason to believe that, unlike the national empirical evidence, usage of illegal drugs is higher in poor neighborhoods than in wealthier neighborhoods, or higher among black people than white people in this city? These are questions that the media just does not ask. They don't even, it's not even on their radar, it seems like. And so how do we get more reporters more to be critical of these institutions? I think the first step is just starting to unpack just how absurd the current criminal punishment bureaucracy is, right? So as I wrote in my book, um, in 2015, as with many years prior to that, more people were arrested and caged for possessing the marijuana plant than for all violent crime combined. So this is a criminal punishment bureaucracy that is of unprecedented size and scope. No other society in recorded history of the modern world has attempted to transfer this many human beings from their schools and homes and jobs and churches and families into government-run cages. And, and the plurality of those arrests for decades has been possessing some kind of a substance that's on a list of substances that the government says I can't possess. I mean, that is just outrageous. And then you, you have to like 
peel back the layers one by one. What does it actually mean? How is it the case that police are accomplishing this? Well, very particular police officers, very particular commanders, very particular chiefs, very particular mayors are making actual intentional decisions about things like having an undercover unit that's going to search for drugs, about stopping cars, stopping and frisking people on the street, raiding homes, search warrants. These are all explicit policy decisions about which types of crime they're going to look for and which types of crime they're going to ignore. And among the types of crime they're going to look for, which neighborhoods are we going to look for? Are we going to look for drug crimes in poor neighborhoods with people of color or on the Yale campus, right? Right. Um, Or on the fancy boarding school, right? Where lots of wealthy uh, high school students are doing whatever drugs that they want. Um, We know what, what decisions they're making. And so, you know, I think it's it's worth like actually making police chiefs and others articulate this decision making process for the public. So why is it the case that you aren't using undercover officers to investigate campus sexual assault? Why is it the case that you don't have any undercover cops searching for overtime fraud by police or corruption um, in police departments? Why is it that all of your undercover operations for the last three or four years have been um, you know, undercover drug buys, right? And these are like really important to get them actually talking because if, if you think about it, very rarely has um, any journalist for years that I've seen, local or national, actually forced some of these, you know, so-called law enforcement officers, I say so-called because they only enforce some laws against some people some of the time. <laughs> right. Very rarely has anyone asked them to actually explain what they're doing and why when it comes to drug policy. Yeah. And I use that as an example because if, if they're doing all of this stuff with respect to drugs, how, how can we trust anything they're doing on anything else? Because what they're doing on drugs is just so outrageous and cruel and ineffective and so counterproductive to the actual stated values that they claim they're pursuing. What, what really drives me crazy reading journalism about drugs is, uh, especially right now, where it seems like there's this backlash fomenting against things like harm reduction, against less punitive and more public health oriented uh, interventions and policy proposals for the fact that over 100,000 people are overdosing on substances every single year in this country now. And that there's sort of complete obfuscation and kind of mystification of the drivers of these deaths. And what I mean is there's roughly 1 million drug arrests every year. And it's almost pretty steady. It's pretty constant. That happens every year, kind of no matter what. And all of these deaths, all these overdose deaths have been occurring during this really robust enforcement of drug prohibition. And so in the media, what I always see is, we need tougher drug laws or we need to make fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction and make sure anybody caught with any amount of fentanyl is is going to prison for a very, very long time. And it, it's like it kind of just turns reality upside down because it's like, wait, no, all of this harsh punishment, all of these overdose deaths have been coinciding together for decades. And and like you say, the the drug war is sort of uh, perhaps one of the most sophisticated PR campaigns out there. And I think what um, maybe is sort of new and part of what you're doing is really 
looking at this in such a materially uh, kind of grounded way that that kind of really demystifies a lot of this stuff. And one thing my mind goes to now is just the fact of how much money police departments actually spend on communications and PR. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not like a necessarily like a line item in the budget, but I'm pretty sure it's like an astonishing amount. Absolutely. Um, we, we don't know a lot about it because it's, they do such a good job of hiding it, but there was an investigation last year, just to take Los Angeles for an example of the LA times did an investigation and found that the sheriff's department alone had 42 full-time employees working on PR. That's like an incredible amount of PR people. Um, the LAPD, the, the police department, had another 25 people. So just in Los Angeles, the two largest departments, and then there's you know 30 or 40 other police departments in the Los Angeles County area, you know Beverly Hills and uh, all these other towns have their own police departments. So just the two largest departments are spending 67 full-time employees. That doesn't even count all the part-time people and the cops doing social media, et cetera. Um, you know, I testified at a hearing in San Francisco where the San Francisco Board of Supervisors learned that San Francisco PD had nine full-time employees working on this, including the head of the unit, the propaganda unit, the police department was making almost $300,000 a year. And San Francisco had a full, police had a full time videographer making like propaganda videos about cops, and wow. they were not satisfied with that. This year's budget, the police requested money for a second full time videographer, and this is really really important to understand. So much of how local media works, especially because local media has been significantly divested from private equity has bought up and torn apart and sold for scraps. A lot of these outlets, um, a lot of local newsrooms have been absolutely decimated. And so a lot of what gets covered in local print and TV and radio news um, is not stuff that content that journalists have done themselves. It's stuff they're repeating that they've been sent through edited videos, press releases, talking points, etc. And so in most of these towns, the police department is really the only game in town, and they're providing a constant stream of content for journalists. And that's one reason. It's not necessarily that there's this conspiracy where the journalists are, are nefarious and in on it with the police. It's just the police make it really, really easy for journalists in the, in the same way that corporate PR media departments make it really, really easy to cover corporate talking points. And so that's both... Um, uh, a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, but it's important to understand that that's one of the key drivers. And there's, there's many other drivers, and there are a lot of journalists out there who are also sort of like nefarious actors as well. But the, one of the big things that's actually going on is the sheer investment that police are putting into this and, and corporate partners of the police, right? So there's a lot of money to be made in surveillance and police arrests, et cetera. That, so the police are getting some help from people. Um, but I think that's an under underappreciated point. Yeah, and really what, what you just spelled out with respect to the kind of ways that the local news and local police departments interlock and depend on one another is really 
the driver of one of the hills I'm constantly dying on, which is the fact that touching fentanyl will not kill you. That touching fentanyl is not dangerous. And yet we see these videos, a constant stream of, of viral videos of police officers collapsing and fainting at the scene of routine drug busts. And uh, I, I've been analyzing this for, for years and have another piece coming out about it very soon. And, it, and it's just key, really key, critical to understand the ways that, that local news gets their information and especially TV broadcast news, which, it, yeah, it's not really doing like the, the journalistic news gathering uh, operation that, that we tend to think of or associate with uh, uh, journalism. It, it's, it's more like the cops cut together this body camera footage and just kind of send it gift wrapped to the local news stations. And then they run with it and kind of that's one of the, the, the main reasons why we, despite mountains of evidence showing that touching fentanyl cannot possibly be causing overdoses, we keep getting this stream of videos. So it, it really kind of creates like these information bubbles and these spheres of parallel information. It's kind of really like wild and, and insidious to, to think about that. Like this is how uh, just outright false stories keep getting made. So yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's really just like a part of this kind of fascinating and, and disturbing intersection between local news and, and local police, like you said. Absolutely. I, I mean, you've said it very, very well. I mean, I think the fentanyl thing is just bizarre. There's so much of what I write about that is quite subtle and, you know, you might miss it if you don't look closely. And, and you know, for example, just talking about uh, drug use or um, property crime or violent crime in the same sentence as police is itself kind of like science denial. You know, it's, we know as a matter of fact that all of this kind of conduct, which is, you know, coded and discussed as crime in our society is much more linked to things like poverty, inequality, medical treatment, mental health treatment, et cetera, um, than it is to like tweaks in police staffing or, you know, criminalization, et cetera. Like those just aren't significant drivers of these phenomena. Um, And societies that are much more equal, that have less poverty, for example, are way less violent. Um, Policing has essentially nothing to do with rates of sexual assault in this country. You know, to take another example, or domestic violence or murder, et cetera. Um, So now there is like a big, propaganda industry of, of academics who are paid by police departments to try to suggest very marginal connections between, you know, the size of police forces and murder. I mean, that, that research is totally ludicrous. And, and even the, the really bad researchers who are unethical, who do that kind of research, are only able to ever suggest that there's a very small effect. It doesn't explain the vast majority of, of what's going on. But the fentanyl thing is not subtle like any of that. It's just it's just this blatant sort of hysteria that police are trying to, to foment about fentanyl. And, you know, the, the thing that you don't see local journalists talking about at all 
is if all of these cops are overdosing by touching fentanyl, why does this never happen in a medical context, right? Um, it, it's just, it's totally ludicrous. There are, there are many other contexts where frontline workers are interacting with and engaging with fentanyl. But I think that the, the deeper thing that you mentioned just a few minutes ago about fentanyl is probably more important to stress, which is that there is not a shred of evidence to support the idea that more policing and prosecution is going to reduce the number of fentanyl overdose deaths. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on. And so uh, it's actually the thing that we can do if we wanted to increase fentanyl deaths would be to invest more in policing and prosecution in prison. And so it, it's, a, it's an outrage and a scandal that that the response of local news is to foment this crisis and to use um, fentanyl overdose deaths as an excuse for emergency declarations that suspend civil liberties, for increasing state surveillance, for increasing the budget of, of narcotics, undercover operations, et cetera. Um, and and, and it, to me, it, it's one of the most disturbing aspects of, of, of modern propaganda, sort of the way that the fentanyl hysteria is playing out. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, disturbing that uh, some of these myths come from such major publications. I mean, we just talked about local news sort of regurgitating uh, police press releases and, and talking points, but it's coming from the New York Times and the Washington Post as well, which it seems like you kind of fucking hate them, which I think is great because I do too. I am just, I can get into all the reasons why I think that they are terrible publications. Um, but you see things in there in, in the New York Times about there's this thing about scrometing, which is screaming and vomiting from cannabis. And it's just completely misrepresenting a very real phenomenon of uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Um, but you also get things like the weed being laced with fentanyl or stories about cannabis being linked to violence. And some of these are sort of nestled into the opinion section, but it's just ridiculous that these are multi-million dollar publishing companies that are publishing things that are a, a google search away from getting the truth you know it's like can't do five seconds of reporting to realize that this is bullshit and it makes me wonder because they're not doing that small amount of just going on google scholar and typing in whatever because they're not doing that, I, I wonder if there is an incentive there. Like, maybe we can talk about New York Times and Washington Post specifically. Why do they have such a vested interest in promoting these pro-drug war narratives? That's a very difficult question. I've, I've racked my brain a lot, particularly with the New York Times. I mean, um, but yes, I, I guess what I'll say is this. Um, those two institutions are not a monolith. There are really rigorous, uh, careful, meticulous journalists at both places who are very frustrated by the work of many of their colleagues who feel undermined. Because I think that the, the thing that we have to acknowledge, maybe the elephant in the room, is there is a incredibly powerful rising fascist movement in this country. And obviously our systems of repression have been very sophisticated and horrific for a long, long time. Um, but the, the threat of kind of overt fascism and, and the sort of rising right wing, extreme right wing 
uh, organization is something I think that I've not seen in my sort of years of, of studying and, and, and uh, these systems and living here. And so all of this, this work that these major media institutions are doing on behalf of the police and on behalf of state repression is coming at a time when we are at the greatest danger that, that we've been in in modern times of sliding into uh, an overt fascist um, uh, sort of authoritarian government. And uh, the, the, obviously the Supreme Court case um, last week is just the beginning of, I think, many ordinary people, maybe ordinary liberals kind of like appreciating and realizing that. Um, but the Washington Post and the New York Times are, are operating in that context. And so it's in that context that many of the better journalists at those institutions are absolutely mortified at, at how freely their colleagues are publishing just, not just like, you know, stuff they could have looked up on Google Scholar, but outright misinformation and misinformation that serves the interests of people who are trying to increase the apparatus and architecture of state oppression. And uh, so they're not monolithic. The second thing I'll say is um, both of those institutions are owned by uh, very wealthy members of the ruling class. And right from the, you know, very sort of basic decisions about who is appointed to run those institutions. Um, they're choosing people who have a certain worldview, a certain set of relationships, a certain set of political connections. And then the people that get into those positions and then the middle management positions as well, they know very, very well uh, in the DC political scene and in the corporate uh, financial culture in New York, um, they know very, very well what things they can talk about and what things they can't, what things are safe to report on, what things you'll be celebrated for, what things you'll be put on the front page for, um, how to get your own multi-million person newsletter in the case of David Leonhardt at the New York Times. He's, he's a smart, sophisticated person. He knows um, that if he uh, becomes sort of a, uh, a centrist liberal voice who's pro-police, he's going to be a lot more popular than if he's saying things like the things that the three of us are saying on this podcast. So there's, there's a set of like subtle institutional incentives not to piss off powerful people. Um, and, and that is, in my experience, dealing with many of the um, reporters at those institutions who aren't like actively like bad faith actors trying to, to mislead people. There are a few of those, like Herman Lopez at the New York Times is one of the most bad faith actors on all of these issues I've ever encountered. But not everyone is like that. Many of them are actually just people who are operating in bureaucracies where it's very clear what's going to advance their career and very clear what isn't. And they subtly learn those things. They absorb them subconsciously. And the final point is that their social circles are often very constrained. They're like bubbles. Um, not only are they in bubbles on social media, but the, the people they spend time with are often, in my experience, when I've interviewed them and asked them about this, they're not people that are that are um, subverting um, norms and rules and laws in our society. They're not sort of like uh, leftist organizers and socialists. They're, they're in a relatively constrained bubble of, of well-to-do journalists who don't have a lot of experience 
being the victims of state repression, don't have a lot of experience organizing and building and being a part of social movements. Um, and so they're in a very corporate culture. And I think all of those things, I, you know, there's a lot more to it that I write about on Twitter. There's many other points to be made, but those are some of the high level points that come to mind when I think about those institutions. That's a really good point about the them not being monolithic. And I, I obviously see lots of good journalism from both publications, but the amount of crap that I see just frustrates me to no end. Um, and it's interesting that you're bringing up this sort of peer pressure to not, you know, rock the boat. Don't piss off the cops by publishing something like that they're lying, for example. Um, first of all, there's the risk of losing access, which a lot of journalists, they really guard that very closely, like being able to have close connections to people in the police or in politics, like they don't want to lose that uh, channel. So there's this incentive to not say anything negative about these institutions. Um, which brings me to my my question here, which is like, you know, how do you deal with being, I'm sure you've been accused of this plenty of times of being anti-cop of like, if you're saying anything that's against what the police are saying, that somehow you're against this, against public safety. Um, so how do you deal with that? And, and, and I guess, you know, what role would you like to see police have in society, if any? I care very deeply about the safety of all human beings and the safety of all animals and plants that share this beautiful world with us. And so the reason I do the work that I do is I believe that the existing way of doing things is letting a small group of very wealthy, very powerful people destroy not only the planet, um, but create incredible amounts of needless suffering. These are the same people who have arrested tens of millions of people for possessing plants uh, over the last 40 years. The same people who have separated tens of millions of little children from their parents and loved ones because someone possessed a plant that's on a list of plants you can't possess, right? Um, that's what these people are capable of. That's what they are doing to us, not just in the drug realm, but in every realm of the criminal punishment bureaucracy. It is impossible to take a look at what police do and to think that their role is to keep us safe. The role of police in our society, and I, and I talk about this quite at length in, in my book, Usual Cruelty, because I, I, it was really the point of me trying to write the book using hundreds of examples and a lot of experiences that I've had as a civil rights lawyer. But the role of police is to preserve existing distributions of wealth and power. And that is why you see police only enforce some laws against some people. That's why you see the, the sort of people who control our society making some things criminal and other things not. So there was a reason that opium was made criminal, right? When it was made criminal. There's a reason that marijuana was made criminal when it was made criminal. There's a reason that cocaine was criminalized when it was criminalized. And in every case, it was to give police and the sort of forces of state repression more and more discretion to target particular social and ethnic and immigrant groups, right? Um, and that's how the laws are used. So I don't think that it, when, when I say these things, it's not that I'm anti every police officer. I, you know, have, have um, met and known many police officers and like many of them, I think, are not fully aware of the role that the institution of police is playing. And many of them don't have the mental state of 
you know, going into that job because they want to perpetuate um, racial, gender, and economic oppression. Um, but that is, a, as a matter of fact, the role that professionalized police bureaucracies have played since they became um, like a more formal thing in the late 19th century. And what role would I like them to play? I mean, I honestly don't see a role for what we think of as the police officer. It's impossible to separate the police officer from how the police officer came about in this country, which was uh, evolved from slave patrols in the South and in the North, police forces evolved from strike-breaking forces. They, they were mainly um, like uh, cultivated and professionalized by wealthy industrialists in order to have a force that was capable of combating and disrupting and infiltrating and crushing union organizing. And they, they look a little different now. In the, in the second half of the 20th century, police adopted a number of slogans like to protect and to serve, and they started framing themselves as about public safety in order to trick people into thinking that the, the professionalization of police had changed them from what they were doing in the first half of the 20th century. Um, I don't see a role for police in solving any of the most serious problems of our society, which, which have to do with massive inequality, environmental degradation, etc. And in fact, if you look at the 20th century, the police have surveilled and infiltrated and brutally suppressed every significant movement for social, racial, and gender justice, environmental justice that we've had. That is really the role of police. They preserve status quo distributions of power. And so given that, I don't see any role for what we currently think of as police. I do see a role for communities um, to um, keep each other safe, for groups of people to band together and to think about what safety means in their community and to have truly accountable truly restorative ways of resolving conflict. And I think if you look at the historical evidence, many societies throughout the world and many societies throughout world history have been far better at reducing violence and achieving more human connection um, with, um, without sort of armed government bureaucrats seen as the only way you can think about safety. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk a little bit more about what you're envisioning there? Because I agree with you completely that I really don't see a role in our society for what we think of as police. It's really important to even get to a point where we can start addressing that is to let people understand what the actual role of police is. I think you did a great job of summarizing that. That is extremely hard to deny. And I think that if you are denying it, you really are living in a different reality and just being, but, but then when I talk about how like, okay, we don't, I, I think of a future without prisons, without, police without mass surveillance like people treat me like i'm a little crazy like oh you're 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 thinking of rainbows and unicorns but i'm not this is this is a real possibility we could build a society like that but i want to talk more about what that actually looks like in practice maybe you could point out some examples uh somewhere in in the united states or or anywhere in the world where this is finding alternatives to this I just wanted to interject with one observation is, and I know comparing countries is sort of apples to oranges, but um, everyone should go look up Costa Rica and its public health system. What this country did was defund their military and invest all of that into community public health. It's like such a beautiful, interesting, uh, humane model. And 
if you look at Costa Rica and its public health outcomes, it's really quite amazing. And if you ask how they did it, it's because they literally don't have a they don't have a military anymore. It's 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 like uh, my utopia for for this country. But I, I'd love to hear what Alex says. We do not have to have, and most countries don't have, armed government bureaucrats doing traffic enforcement, right? But a huge percentage of police officer time and money in this country and overtime cash is spent on traffic enforcement. Um, What would it look like if we took that away from the police bureaucracy and gave it to unarmed um, community members instead? You could reduce the budgets um, by 20 or 30% right off the bat of current police forces. Secondly, um, a huge percentage, it varies depending on how you count and in which city, uh, but a huge percentage of police 911 calls are for mental health crises. Um, so only 4% of all police 911 calls um, are for what the police call violent crime. 96% of it is for stuff that does not involve any conceivable um, uh, threat of violence. So what, what might it look like to have, like, like in Denver, for example, Portland, um, sort of non-carceral, non-armed mental health first response teams that aren't going to shoot people or kill people. They're going to connect people to the services that they need. They're going to de-escalate the situation that are going to provide people care. I like to think about it as sort of care, not cages. And those units are far, far cheaper, for example. Um, I was just talking to some organizers in Los Angeles in, in, in the city of West Hollywood, where city of West Hollywood is charged almost $400,000 a year for each sheriff's deputy. And they can, they can get four to five unarmed, highly paid individual community members to walk the streets and patrol for the price of one sheriff's deputy. Um, what might it look like if society's invested in that, right? Um, you could go on and on through, like there's incredible studies about how every dollar invested in early childhood education dramatically reduces um, involvement in the criminal system later in life. And, and so it, sometimes it just looks like doing after-school programming, um, hiring more teachers, music, theater, art programming, right? Um, those are literally direct investments. A lead abatement is another one that is incredibly, um, profoundly socially useful investment. It, every dollar you invest in these things now is 10 15 $20 you don't need to spend on policing and incarceration in 5 10 15 20 years. So. There are all these different options, and for different problems, there are different solutions. There are um, clinics and restorative justice shelters and and programs um, for dealing with domestic violence in a way that actually reduces the instances of domestic violence long-term. There are ways to address um, harm that children commit that don't involve putting them in adult prisons and jails, that don't involve police, but that involve meeting the child's needs and addressing the child's trauma. These are all like really obvious things. And there's pilot programs doing these all over the US. And there's many examples of these flourishing in entire societies worldwide that are thinking about harm and violence as public health issues and not as punishment issues. So I think, you know, we don't need to go all there at once. You know, we don't need, you know, to to say we're going to eliminate all police and all prisons and all jails right this moment. But I think if you start to pick them off one piece at a time, so you look at the police budget and you look at what the police are actually doing and you start to think, well, do we need them doing this? Are they the best person to do that? Or 
would a public health worker and a mental health worker and a teacher be a better suited long-term investments? And so I think if you think about it like that, um, it starts to become an obvious answer um, and not something that sounds like you're sort of from another planet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I kind of want to bring it back to drugs uh, because <laughs> you get so much pushback when you're like, hey, we should probably legalize and regulate most, if not all, drugs. Um, I don't know about fentanyl, but definitely uh, opium should be legal or or heroin, you know. Uh, but some some pushback I get is like, okay, well, if you get rid of the cops, and I'm including Border Patrol and Customs and ICE in this equation, then you're just going to allow whatever to come across the border all the time. I guess, like, how do you envision a world where people, where drug use is treated as a as a health problem and not a criminal justice problem? But also, I guess, preventing these fears that are maybe conflated or bad faith fears that if we reduce the police, then we're just going to have the streets overflowing with meth or something like that. I want to just say I'm not pretending to be an expert on drug policy. You know, it's not my area of expertise. I have significant experience studying the criminal system and how ineffective it is and significant experience representing people accused by the government of possessing or selling drugs. But I don't, I don't want to pretend to be offering all of the answers here. But what I, what I will say is I have never been shown a single shred of evidence that criminalization of certain substances is the best way to reduce the prevalence of those substances. So I, I just don't think that is the way, and it's certainly not how our society deals with other harmful substances like tobacco or alcohol, for example, um, you know, which kill far more people. Tobacco kills over 450,000 people in this country every single year. Secondhand smoke alone is 12 September 11th every single year of non-smokers. So, I mean, I think our society doesn't even treat other harmful substances in the same way. And I think it has to do, there's a lot of reasons for that. But what I, what I want to focus on is um, the notion that uh, what's the only thing stopping us from a meth-filled, fentanyl-filled society is the presence of a few cops fundamentally misunderstands um, how those markets work, um, how the use of those substances work, and the effectiveness of police at stopping people from using them. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, this is, I think, a pretty important question, but, uh, you know, is there an element of racism to copaganda? Absolutely. I think if, if the people who were brutalized and targeted and surveilled and caged and separated from families were wealthy white people, if that's who the cops were targeting, the coverage of cops would be completely different. The coverage of cops looks the way that it looks because 90% of people that police in this country arrest are poor. It looks the way that it looks because police are targeting certain people for certain things. If you saw violent police raids with AK-47s and shields and stripping people naked and probing their anuses and all the other things that police do as a matter of course when they execute search warrants in people's homes. If you saw that happening in wealthy white people's homes all the time um, with their pets being shot and 
them being sexually and physically assaulted and traumatized their children. You would see 24-hour news cameras outside the police departments. You would see all the top police officials getting fired. You would see them going to jail, right? Um, but because they're targeting the most powerless people in our society, and because the whole point for wealthy people is to have a, a force of state violence that can control poor people, um, you, you don't see those things discussed in the media. And a lot of that is cultural. Like it's, it's, it's the people in the media share a sense of social bond and experience with, with more wealthy people who don't, who are not the targets of police violence. But part of it is also economic and financial incentives for the media. And, and so that's why I think all this propaganda we're talking about is necessarily linked to racism because the people targeted by police are disproportionately people of color. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the lack of rigor, intellectual and moral rigor, in media reporting around police um, is, to a significant degree, influenced by who police are targeting. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a really important point to emphasize that they're back to like grounding this stuff in material reality. There's just you know, if most journalists are kind of uh, middle to upper middle class white people in these kind of bubbles of, like you mentioned, then, then yeah, there's natural uh, socialization and uh, connections they have with uh, or affiliations that they have with um, certain groups. And, and I think uh, in... And on this show and in Troy's journalism and my journalism, it, it's, it's, it's just so the, the racism is, is so entrenched when, when it comes to drugs, where uh, white people use drugs probably more than, than anyone else in, in this country. And, and the arrest rates just simply have never reflected that. Not that I think more white people should be arrested for drugs. It's, it's, it's the opposite. It's fewer people, uh, less people all, all around should uh, be be subject to criminalization for their drug use. And I think to, you know, to try to wrap this conversation up and, and wind down a, a little bit, like we, we've talked a lot about how the, the media and certain news outlets really get some of these critical issues wrong. Sometimes out of, just being uninformed and truly they didn't know what they were doing. And then other times there, there's much more deliberate, bad faith things going on. And, uh, you know, maybe to end on more of a positive note, like are there reporters out there or news, news outlets out there who you see consistently getting things right and they frame things correctly? Um, yeah. I think there are so many great journalists. I don't have the time to list them all, but I think, you know, the appeal is a great source of information for stories around drugs and around the criminal punishment system. Um, There's a couple of new uh, outlets like Bolts Magazine, which is a great source for coverage of local electoral issues that affect these things. And so there, but there are many, many amazing journalists at all of these institutions that are doing great work every single day. Um, and, and it's important, you know, that we, that we support that kind of like independent local and and rigorous journalism for sure. 
Yeah. Thanks so much, Alec. This has been a real pleasure to, to hear to hear you speak on all these really important topics. Yeah, it's been really great like seeing your stuff on Twitter and you're just breaking this stuff down for people in a way that is really easy to understand and just straightforward. And it, it because people at the other end of the spectrum, like they have a lot more resources for this propaganda. It's just an avalanche of bullshit and people don't have time to sift through it or don't really know how to understand it or scrutinize it. So thank you for the work you do. Um, where can people find you? People can find me at Equality Alec on Twitter um, and at Civ Rights Corps, which is our organization on Twitter and check us out. And I also write a newsletter um, called Alex Copaganda Newsletter. So if you're interested in that, you can subscribe to that. You can look it up and it's on Substack and it's available for free. And it's where I break down a lot of these media stories. Great. We'll have links to all that in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on. This has been really great. Thanks for (laughs) bearing through my obvious questions. Thank you all so much. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah. Christopher Moraff and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. Patrons get free stickers, which are personally mailed to them, and can request a shout-out on the show. And now, Patreons can even get 30% off merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we're so grateful to the folks that make this show possible.